Thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Don't forget to try doing so on the NPR One app. And another podcast you might like is Fresh Air. Check out a recent episode they did that takes an in-depth look at the Trump Foundation's finances. It features an interview with reporter David Farenthold. He used Twitter to launch a nationwide scavenger hunt to find Trump Foundation assets. Find these and other interviews on the Fresh Air podcast on the NPR One app and at npr.org podcasts. OK, here's the show. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast here with an episode of Listener Mail. This is where we answer your questions about the issues, the players, and anything else you're curious about. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. Before we get started, just want to note that we are taping this before the weekend. (laughs) So when news happens over the weekend, because we know it probably will, don't worry, we will be back in your feed soon to talk about it. Okay, let's move to our stack of mail here. Oh, jeez. Yeah, okay, it's all email. This is like Prairie Home Companion where we're going to have a sound effects guy. Like, I think this podcast is woebegone. <laughs> Let's go. Sorry. First up, we have a recorded question from Michael from Lancaster, PA. Let's hear it. Hey, NPR Politics Podcast. My question for you is what are, if any, the consequences for a president that issues an executive order that could possibly be deemed unconstitutional later on? I'm a big fan of the podcast. Thanks for all you do. Well, it would just mean that the executive order couldn't be enforced. And it certainly wouldn't be something that, you know, there's any kind of real tie to impeachment proceedings or something. That has to be done through the Congress. They're the ones who have control over that. Now, indirectly, potentially, if you were doing so many things that were being deemed unconstitutional, perhaps members of Congress could say, you know, there's there's too many things here that this president's doing that's overstepping their bounds and then, you know, move for impeachment. But that is uh, very far afield. And while President Trump's order on immigration and the travel ban has been the subject already of a large number of lawsuits, It's not uncommon for presidential executive actions to be challenged in court. No, not at all. And I mean, you know, we've seen this pretty recently with a couple of Obama administration executive actions. There was, you know, a challenge in the courts with one of his immigration actions. Likewise, uh, in December, a federal judge froze the implementation of President Obama's overtime executive order, which would have granted more people the ability to earn overtime. Thanks for the question, Michael. And speaking of executive orders, up next is a question about someone who opposed one of those orders. Andy writes, hi, NPR politics crew, three exclamation points. As you know, Sally Yates was fired by Donald Trump due to her opposition to his immigration executive order. My question is simple. Do you believe that Sally Yates acted in accordance to her role as attorney general by directly and publicly opposing his policy? Not asking if you agree or disagree with the ban itself, but rather the actions of the AG in response. Okay, who wants to go first? (laughs) Well, you know, look, the fact is she was already kind of on a short plank, right? I mean, she was going to be She was the acting attorney attorney general. Jeff Sessions, who's Trump's nominee to be attorney general, was going to be in fairly shortly anyway. You know, Sally Yates said that she felt it was her duty 
to stand up for what is right, quote. Um, and she said that her job goes beyond what the Office of Legal Counsel's job is, which is the small office within the Justice Department, which reviewed the executive order and said that it was lawful. She said that her job was to stand up for what is right. Now, some people have felt that that went too far and was beyond the scope of what she's supposed to do. But she had said when she was asked, ironically, by Jeff Sessions in her confirmation hearing, whether she would stand up to the president. She said she would. One one thing that I find interesting in this, though, is that, you know, she she got into the territory of what is right and what is wrong. And people have said that's touchy and that's fine. But it's not as if there is a pure interpretation of the law that is clear for every attorney general. Right. Like, for example, Sally Yates, Jeff Sessions, Eric Holder, John Ashcroft, all of these people have very different ideas about what the law is. And I've seen a number of people write like legal expert types, write That she actually gave him the last word by staying in the job and letting him fire her, which he did almost immediately. Mm -hmm. And even people who think she was right don't really blame him for firing her. Right. And I mean, you know, in keeping with some of the very sharp and aggressive, uh, shall we say, rhetoric from this administration, there's some pretty strong language in the White House statement announcing Sally Yates' firing. For example, it says... The acting attorney general, Sally Yates, has betrayed the Department of Justice by refusing to enforce a legal order, et cetera, et cetera. Later, it says Ms. Yates is an Obama administration appointee who is weak on borders and very weak on illegal immigration. But so this is a very pointed statement that the Trump White House was making here. Yeah, usually these uh, personnel statements are very anodyne. <laughs> right. Not this There's one. nothing. Ge- it's not a very genteel, you know, lawyerly way of putting things. All right. Thank you, Andy. And On to the next one. We've actually gotten a lot of questions recently about Steve Bannon, who is Trump's chief strategist in the White House. There was news that he will join the National Security Council's Principles Committee, which is the top interagency group for discussing national security. And a lot of you wrote in wanting to know if that's a position that requires confirmation by the Senate. The answer there is short and sweet, right, guys? No. Right. And to to make this pretty clear here, I mean, so there's the National Security Act of 1947. It establishes the National Security Council. Steve Bannon has been named to the Principles Committee. The Principles Committee is not listed in that National Security Act. Therefore, it's a bit looser as to who the attendees of that can be. So there is no confirmation required here. And Bannon was added through an executive action, a presidential security memoranda. Right. Mm -hmm. So the Principles Committee and how the National Security Council should be laid out and set up is issued by the president. And they do this every time a new one takes office. But the Principles Committee is an important section of the National Security Council. And what was notable here is that the president's chief strategist was put on that list. So on the White House side of things, All Things Considered interviewed a man named Sebastian Gorka. He's a deputy assistant to the president. And Audie Cornish asked Gorka about why Bannon should be on this special committee of the Security Council. You work with the National Security Council and you've worked with Steve Bannon in the past at Breitbart News. Um, What's the rationale for elevating him as chief strategist to the principles committee of the National Security Council? Uh, Your question provides the answer. What is this individual's title? Chief strategist to the president of the United States and senior counselor. The idea that it would be in some way uh, controversial to have the president's chief strategist 
in the meetings of the National Security Council, again, is rather a peculiar stance to take. This is the man that provides strategic advice at the highest level to the president. Of course, having him in the deliberative body that deals with national security is, again, the injection of common sense. Right. And so, you know, he talks about, you know, the chief strategist coming to NSC meetings. Well, David Axelrod weighed in on this. He was sort of the analogous person in the early days of the Obama administration. And what what he has said was, you know, yes, I went to these meetings, but I was not a member. Robert Gibbs, the press secretary at the time, and I sat on the sidelines because we knew we would be asked to talk about this later. We just wanted to hear what was going on. Right. To get better informed about policy because they would have to talk about these things that the National Security Council was deciding. One other point about this, you know, a little bit of palace intrigue here because the chief strategist being elevated to the principals committee, you know who else is on the principals committee and always is? The chief of staff. The chief of staff, which happens to be Reince Priebus. And there's always some talk about who's got more influence and power with Donald Trump, Reince Priebus or Steve Bannon. Right. So to tack on one more thing here, though, uh, you know, a lot of the controversy here, it's not just about whether Steve Bannon, as a strategist for the president, belongs on the NSC Principles Committee. It's also a lot of the controversy is about whether this particular strategist belongs on the Principles Committee, because, of course, Steve Bannon has said many things that have upset many people. All right. So that was a long answer. But thank you for all of the questions. And as long as Steve Bannon stays in the good graces of President Trump, I'm sure we will be talking about him more. Moving on, we have a question from Jake, who writes, Hey, guys, my question has to do with Trump's taxes. Now that he is the POTUS, will his taxes become a matter of public record? Thanks and keep on trucking. You know, it has been we've pointed out and I've done stories about this, but the fact that, you know, everyone has released their taxes in the last 40 years on both sides of the aisle who ran for president. Well, Donald Trump didn't do that. Uh, His team has said that he's not going to release them. Now, when Congress maybe moves on tax reform, some of the conversation could move to the idea that, hey, we have no idea how any of this will affect Donald Trump. But we've already been talking about that with his businesses. And that hasn't really moved the conversation in any direction or had him feel any pressure to release those tax returns. Now, sitting presidents have release their taxes. I mean, I... I, There's a tradition of that. Right, yes. I know I have written stories about President Obama's tax returns, for example. But, am I right, there's no law saying that the president has to show you all all of what he earned last year in his W-2s and all of that. So much of what has been done in politics is based on tradition rather than statute. So things like the president releasing his medical records or the president releasing his taxes, it's not required by law. Right. He does have to release a financial disclosure, and he'll have to do that by uh, sometime in 2018. So we'll get some measure of that. But the financial disclosure is a lot different than tax returns because financial disclosure has a much wider range within each category as opposed to knowing exactly what they made and what their interests are. Okay, next we have a question from Kim. She asks, I have a question about Trump's call for federal agencies to reduce two regulations for every one they add. Can you explain what that means? Do agencies even create regulations or do they implement them? And since some are overlapping, how can that directive realistically be implemented? Ooh, that's a lot of stuff. It, it is. So, Danielle. Um, all right. Here we go. As per usual, I am going to try to keep this short and probably fail. So, 
the common way this has been talked about is two for one. Every new regulation you create over there at the EPA, for example, you got to get rid of two. Now, it's there is cost involved in this. What he has said is that any new incremental costs associated with new regulations shall, to the extent permitted by law, be offset by the elimination of existing costs associated with at least two prior regulations. In other words... You add a new regulation, whatever it costs. You can't just get rid of two teeny tiny little ones. You've got to offset it. It's got to zero out. It has to cost this. And those are even difficult to figure out because they're estimates. Absolutely. So the, the Office of Management and Budget, in theory, would tally this up. But So they're the refs here, the OMB. Right, as laid out in this executive order. But there is so much that is unclear here. There is a great working paper that was put out by a guy at George Washington University. His name is Marcus Peacock. And it laid out a lot of the questions. For example, what is a new regulation? What constitutes that? Do you only do the big regulations? Do you do smaller ones? The devil is in the details here is one of the things that's been said about this rule. And that's entirely true. Regulation is a really Byzantine thing. Can you give me an example of a couple of regulations? Fuel standards on cars, that is a regulation. And, you know, often you will hear some on the left say, well, actually, some regulations, they save money. They don't necessarily cost money. Like if you have cleaner air, you're making people less sick. If you're keeping people from salmonella, then you're making people less sick. They say that, you know, it saves on health and it saves lives. So there is a back and forth on this also as to what are the costs and benefits of regulations. The Affordable Care Act, for example, requiring rooms for women who are nursing to Mm -hmm. have lactation areas. Uh, that was that's regulation that is within the Affordable Care Act. How do you quantify that money wise? Right, would be some kind of task. Mm-hmm. Right, and one more thing to answer the other question here: uh, Who has the authority to make regulations? Well, agencies do. They get the authority uh, from Congress. Now, Congress can ask them, okay, hey, make this regulation, but they can just do it on their own as well. Now, what happens after that? It's a long process. They propose a rule. They put it out there for comment. You can comment on the website. Then they integrate. It goes on and on and on. And right now, Congress is actually considering a host of regulations that they're looking to repeal that were all put through during the Obama administration, Uh, repealing a regulation that would Uh, That was aimed at preventing coal mining debris from being dumped into nearby streams. So that, you know, is just one of the regulations that uh, are going to be rolled back. And President Trump came into office saying, I'm going to get rid of these onerous regulations. He did that. That they hold back business. Yeah, he did that executive order. uh, And now he will be signing these regulations. repeals that that Congress is sending over to him in terms of politics in ter- this this stream rule that that they're working on in terms of politics this rule was pretty unpopular in coal country and in an Appalachia I mean it's it sure is something that it's really easy to run on it's a very easy thing to narrativeize like listen we we're for business businesses hate regulations we're going to get rid of regulations don't you want that don't you want more jobs you know qed boom here you go everybody it's it's very easy to explain to a constituent it's very easy to say that it's a great thing qed it's uh, like you put it at the end of a mathematical it's latin proof. quad erat demonstratum or something man i'm sorry to be the once again the apple polisher okay. new question <laughs> next question comes from alex Alex says, I have a question regarding the primaries for the 2020 election. Is it possible? No. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. He's 
sapping. Alex uh, is sapping our optimism. Domenico is crawling under the desk, everybody. He's rocking and sobbing. But, I just put the superdelegate list away. I know the answer to this one. I'm really excited. Boom, let's do it. Is it possible for another Republican to run against Trump in the primaries? How would that work? Sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, anyone could, could run against mm-hmm. a sitting president. It's very rare. Yeah. Like not not rare that they run against them, but it's very rare that they would win. Um, so, while yes, it's possible, it would work in the in the same way it works every four years. You have to win enough delegates, mm-hmm. delegates oh. to win the nomination. You need a majority of delegates. So you actually do have to win New Hampshire and Iowa and South Carolina, and we're going to go to Michigan and wherever else. And you've got. To me channeling my Howard Dean, mm-hmm. um, and you've got to you've got to gain enough delegates to win. So usually it's not a big deal because a president who's up for re-election goes through the motions, files, gets on the ballot, gets the delegates, and there's a coronation. Essentially, they have all the institutional advantages. Yeah. Now it can be sometimes uh, where if someone does some things so controversial that they can be challenged, and that's happened in the past. The example I'm thinking of is 1980 when Ted Kennedy primaried Jimmy Carter. Now, Jimmy Carter was the nominee and totally lost to Ronald Reagan in the end. All right. Our last question is from Alicia. She writes, I would love to hear your thoughts on how in the world the annual White House Correspondents' Dinner will go this year, given Trump's unrelenting animosity toward the media. Will he cancel it? If not, will the media decline to attend? Will the room sound like crickets? And she adds, this has been my can't let it go for several weeks now. (laughs) So as fate would have it, Jeff Mason, the president of the White House Correspondents Association, tweeted out a statement about the dinner this very morning. And he writes to our members. We've received some queries about the 2017 White House Correspondents' Dinner, which will be the first since the new administration took office. The White House Correspondents' Association will hold its annual dinner on April 29th at the Washington Hilton. This year, as we do every year, we will celebrate the First Amendment and the role an independent press plays in a healthy republic. I mean, I think a lot of the the questions surrounding this may hinge from a uh, misperception that the president throws the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And of course, uh, you know, the president does not. You know, the White House Correspondents' Association, as per this statement, does. It's also, you know, it's a fundraiser. This is something that the Correspondents' Association uses to raise money for the scholarship program. And there are awards that are given out. Now, it's a nice draw when the president of the United States says he will speak at your dinner. You can get a lot of people to go and pay money for tables Mm -hmm. to help support your organization. That's certainly one big goal of this. Now, the president, I think the the underlying issue here is whether or not Donald Trump will attend. Right. Um, you know, Barack Obama stopped attending the radio and television Correspondents Association dinner, which a lot of presidents had done both. They would go to the White House Correspondents Center. They would also do the RTCA, as it's known. Uh, and Obama, you know, after doing like one of them said, you know, not going to that anymore. Mm-hmm. And as for the crickets... <laughs> I will just say that I have been at correspondence dinners where the comedian just isn't that funny. Yeah. And that's true. there are crickets. Mm-hmm. And it has, you know, it has nothing to do with who the president of the United States is. It's a weird room. A lot of glad handing. Yeah. But there is but, a comedic challenge for the president of the United States, no matter what the party is. 
because there has to be a certain sense of self-effacingness, you know, mm-hmm. a, a humor, um, and being able to, you know, identify with your audience and talk about the importance of the press, uh, even if you disagree with them and you get in some jibes. And it's been generally, whether it's President Bush or President Clinton or going as far back, you know, as Reagan, everybody has done basically that model. That's not really Donald Trump's model. So how he attacks that room in that situation, um, you know, remains to be seen. All right. Thanks for all of your questions. That is all for the mail for now. Big shout out to all the people sending us mail. We really appreciate it. And even if we can't reply, your questions and comments are always really helpful. So thank you for that. And please keep up with our political coverage outside of the podcast using the NPR One app or on your local public radio station. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Mm-hmm.